what are the anchors in a market? And it's not just, okay, there's a university or there's a hospital, but what's happening at that university or hospital? And I'll give you an example. The University of Cincinnati saw a 9% growth in incoming freshmen this past freshman class versus the year before that. They've hit, um, they're for five years straight now, they've hit enrollment highs, all-time records for enrollment. So when you look at it, it's not just that there's a university there. This university is growing at a rapid pace where they have eight, you know, uh, thousands of new students this year than they had last year who, are, guess what, are looking for housing. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. I'm glad you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop when it comes to investing here in the United States. From real estate investing to business investing to being an entrepreneur. Each show I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they've created successful businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Hopefully these guests will inspire all of you my cracking listeners, to get off the couch and go out and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, no advertising, just straight into the nuts and bolts. If you do like this show, please give us a review on iTunes, and it's easy, quick and simple. Shows iTunes that we're creating an incredible community of loyal listeners and loyal fans who want to invest here in the United States. And you can also follow me on on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can also find this show where this show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. Head over to ReedGoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these shows each and every week. You can see my ugly mug, but you can see the beautiful faces of my guests. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today in the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with an absolute awesome human being, Mr. John Kasman. John is an apartment investor based in Chicago, Illinois, controlling over $18 million in real estate. He also hosts a weekly real estate podcast show called Target Market Insights, and he's also the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. He's an incredible guy, huge amount of knowledge and experience, and we're going to find a lot more about that and what makes him tick. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, John. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Reed, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Mate, my pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I was on your show a little while ago and I just completely forgot to get you on mine. <laughs> so I'm glad to have you here, man. It's been, it's been awesome. We've, we've been you know, uh, collaborating on a fair few you know, deals and stuff like that for some bit of time, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. And no, it was great having you on the show, episode seven. And, um, you know, thanks for helping me getting that show launched and being part of it. And I, and I love that episode. So your listeners should certainly check it out if they want to hear more of your story and kind of the way you're looking at deals and looking at markets. But no, thanks for having me on. It definitely has been a little bit of a while, a little bit of time. 
Um, but it's been great working with you and kind of getting to know you a little bit better and kind of building together. And I think that's what real estate is all about is building relationships, especially when it comes to apartment investing, because, you know, it, it just takes a team to build that. You know, I think when you're looking at single family homes and flips or rentals, you can certainly do that solo. But when you're trying to take down large apartment deals, you need a team in place that can do it. So it's been great to get to know people and kind of building from that perspective. 100%, man. And, and you know, as I said in the introduction, you you are an awesome human being, dude. I've, I've met you a couple of times and uh, we've had some beers and just hang out. You're a down-to-earth type of guy. And that's what I love to, you know, I love getting these people, you type, you, you type of guys on this show because down to earth is what I'm all about. You know, uh, I'm, I'm Australian. It's just like what, what you see is what you get. There's no, right. no BS here. But right. mate, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, do you want to rewind the clock? How did you make your first ever dollar? And I'm not talking about real estate. I'm talking about like, what did you do to hustle as a kid to make money? All right, man. Um, well, I've got two quick ones. The first one, uh, I was with my stepmother and she used to work at um, a records company. So they, they cleaned, they take care of medical records in his big warehouse. And I went there with her one day and the boss, the guy who owned the company, he said, Hey, well, you know, if you sweep up this, this warehouse, I'll, I'll pay you. So I'm like, sweet deal. So I swept up this entire warehouse. I have no idea how big it was, but a huge, let's just assume it was a few thousand square feet, right? Maybe 10,000 square feet or something. Clean up this whole thing. It takes me about an hour. I'm like, I don't know, six or seven. And I sweep up this whole thing and I'm done. And I say, great, I'm finished. And he says, well, what do you think you deserve for it? I'm like, man, let's see, that's a pretty big warehouse. So I don't know, man, like 20 bucks. He's like 20 bucks. I'm like, all right, maybe that was too high. 10 bucks. He's like, 10 bucks. And I'm like, well, damn. Yeah, that was a pretty big word, like $5. And I ended up getting paid two bucks. And um, the lesson there was negotiate your pay up front. Like, don't do all the work and then ask what you're going to get compensated. And then the second thing was, it's funny, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, hustling candy. I actually did. A friend of mine, uh, we we used to go to the little corner store. They had these uh, blueberry blow pops that came out. They were very popular. You can get them for 10 cents. We would buy them in the bulk for 10 cents, sell them in class for a quarter. That worked great for about a month until our teachers basically found out. And we got busted and got pulled into the principal's office and they called my mom and it was this whole ordeal. And then I used to sell video games too. So before there was like, you know, video game exchanges and things like that, we would have games to get tired of playing them. Hey, I've got the new Blades of Steel you want it and we'd sell it in school for a profit that way too so i'd play it it'd be you know used a little bit but i'd swap games and play it so we did a whole bunch of little odds and end things to make a dollar here and there back in the day mate that's it it's an awesome story the sugar gang right the, the, the <laughs> andy and selling it at school and getting slapped over the wrist that's hilarious but also you're right like negotiating up front what you're going to get paid because i think that's as when you first break into the working force you're like uh, you know, what, what am I going to get paid for doing this? You know, what is my time worth as a 14 year old or however old you might've been? And I know I definitely started before I was legal and um, I was a pretty good sweeper myself. I, I do pride myself <laughs> around the house today. She, my, my, my wife's like, yeah, you're a good sweeper. <laughs> I've always been a good sweeper, but, um, but mate, enough out of that. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of today's show. I really want to understand what makes you tick, you know, get inside your brain so the, you know, the listeners can understand how it is to be successful. So let's talk about some of the things that you emailed me earlier today, which is, you know, partnering on different deals and then whether it be apartment communities or just the, 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 the act of partnering in real estate, and how important it is to you and why it's so, why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for me, you know, the way my real estate investing has happened is pretty much been me solo 
up until about two years ago. You know, I did everything by myself. My wife is my partner, so I guess that's not truly fair. My wife is very active in the business, so she's certainly my partner. But it's been she and I doing everything up until about a couple of years ago. And you basically, we ran into a wall. You know, you you only have so much liquid capital of your own that you can invest. And we were doing that. We were making good money. We were, you know, being able to refinance properties, putting equity back in our pocket and, you know, going out and buying more. And we realized that we had something going, but we, we needed to find a way to scale. And for us, as we looked to scale, that meant doing larger deals where there was more, uh, a larger pie, basically, for people to eat. So we can still get the same amount of pie. It's just a much larger pie for our slice, right? So um, that was one thing that we started realizing. And then also recognizing that there are people who had skill sets that could really complement what we were doing. So, you know, I'm, I'm really good. I've got a strong marketing background. I've been doing that for, you know, 12 or 13 years. My wife is a CPA. She's been an auditor. So she understands how to look at the numbers and dig deep into the audit side of it. So once we kind of get into contract, that due diligence period, I kind of just turn to her and let her go wild with it. Um, but underwriting the deals, I mean, that's something that is very, very important. You know, I'm, I'm good at it, but I'm not, you know, I don't have a financial background where I underwrite deals all day long finding deals. You know, I can do that. But again, it takes time to build the appropriate relationship. So, and as you're doing that, raising capital, I mean, when you're talking about these larger deals, you know, you're talking about bringing a lot of money to the table. And I don't necessarily have that rich uncle who's going to stroke me a check for $2 million for the next deal that I find. So you realize that it really does take kind of a team to really grow and build in the way where um, you could build something that is both sustainable, but also mutually beneficial. Because there are a lot of people like me, right? There are a lot of people who are listening to this podcast right now who have the same mindset, you know, maybe have a few deals under the belt, maybe have a little bit of money that they can invest, but not where they can go take down a $10 million apartment building. And that's where it can get a little scary. But if you get four or five guys, or maybe even more, who have some money or know some people with money, it becomes a little bit easier. So, and I think when you, when you leverage those resources, it's not just financial, but the human capital resources, you can do bigger things and you can make a really big imprint. No, I completely agree. And I think it's the, the adage, and I say a lot on this show, you, I'd rather have a little bit of a lot than a lot of nothing, right? And, and I was in the same boat as you, you know, as a lot of people are, you know, you use your own capital and you get to the point where the banks won't lend you anymore. And particularly as an, as an expat, you know, when I first started investing, like I got to my limit pretty quickly because I was I just I didn't have credit, but it is important to understand that real estate is a team sport, and to do that next big deal or that one, you know, as you keep progressing up the chain, uh, one of my mentors always said to me, he's like, uh, it's not about you know the amount of money you make in your first big deal, whether it be apartment syndication or granite construction, or what, or, or, or a million dollar flip or whatever it might be, it's about getting your foot in the game. And once you get your foot in the game, you're going to have credibility. You can then go and make a ton of money. So can you speak to a little bit about that, about how you have used it in your, you know, you and your wife um, to, to slowly like notch your way up as, you, as you're going along the totem pole of, of, of deals, you know, and, and maybe start out, well, what was your first ever deal that you did back in the day? And then what you're scaling to now? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've always known real estate as to be a wealth driver, you know? So uh, the challenge was figuring out how do you actually break into it? So we, the first thing we did back when I was even in college, we, we purchased a group home facility and, you know, I did that with my family, you know, I'm on the loan. This was back in like 2003. So back then you just needed a pulse, right? Cause I was a college student. I worked full time, but I think I was making like, I don't know, 15,000 a year or something like that. But somehow I qualified for this hundred thousand dollar loan, even though I didn't live in the city, I had no money in my bank account. 
They literally put money in the bank account the day before I needed to show it to the bank. I mean, just stuff that would absolutely not fly today, right? Um, so that was the first deal. And that was less of an investment and more of kind of a family business we were growing. The first pure investment was a duplex in Chicago in an area called North Center. And that was one where I researched the heck out of the neighborhood. Because for us, you know, we talked to a lot of investors. We talked to a lot of people at meetups and RIA groups and things like that. And what we realized was we needed to be very, very conservative on the first deal. So we bought an area that we loved. It was the only neighborhood out of 77 neighborhoods in Chicago that did not see any downtick in uh, value during the economic downturn. So the way we looked at it was if this neighborhood is stable and still going up from 2008, 2009, 2010, then there's a pretty good chance it's going to continue to do well over the next few years. So we bought that. That's worked out extremely well. We did have a value at play there where we renovated the bathrooms, renovated the kitchens, renovated some things on the exterior. What I didn't realize is we created a ton of equity. So we actually went to refinance. We bought that with FHA financing. We went to refinance we found out that we had created about $150,000 worth of equity and the bank gave us a $100,000 line of credit. So at that point we realized, wow, there's really something to this value at play. We next bought a three unit, we bought an eight unit building. And from there we really started to or, you know, step back and say, okay, now how do we scale this in a way that is sustainable? Because once we bought that eight unit, we were tapped out. I mean, we, that was all of our money at that point. We had a couple other flip projects going. So we really need to step back and say, okay, we got to figure out a way to do this with other partners because I can't wait another year and a half to buy the next one. And this is just kind of a slow growth, uh, which is why we really started to focus on building partnerships. And it's, that's awesome. You said you got an FHA loan on the first deal. Yeah. Did you house hack that thing? We did. We did. Nice. I'm actually, I'm in it right now. So I'm still <laughs> in it. We, uh, we have another home that we're, we're going to move into. We're probably going to actually put that one on the market instead now, but yeah, we, we, we ha house hacked this one. It's been extremely well. It's a great neighborhood. It's, it's basically, um, it was a neighborhood that was amazing, but people just didn't know about it yet. And now they know about it. So the home, you know, kitty corner back this way, um, they sold it for 600,000 as a teardown and they rebuilt the brand new single family home, sold it for $1.9 million. So, I mean, we, we bought this in 2012, we bought it for $360,000. So, I mean, the value is doubled basically. And, um, you know, we, <laughs> I like to say that, you know, we're really intelligent, smart investors, but a lot of it had to do with, um, the market and the timing. I mean, the timing can't be, uh, can't be missed. I mean, in 2012, if you were buying, you probably did pretty good. But, uh, but again, it helped that we picked the neighborhood that had all the fundamentals that we were looking for. And that's part of why we, when we started to look, as we started expanding, the challenge was I couldn't find neighborhoods that had the same characteristics, which is why I got so intrigued with, well, how do you figure out the neighborhoods? Because it's easy when all the numbers tell you this neighborhood is the one neighborhood that you should be investing in. But when, you, when the numbers don't jump out to you like that, um, it's a little bit more tricky. And that's really segues into the main nuts and bolts of today's show, which is understanding how to find those neighborhoods because you have a very successful podcast, which is all about, you know, understanding different target neighborhoods and stuff like that. And coming from Australia, you know, particularly when I, when I moved, first moved to the United States, people say, oh, the US market, the US real estate market. And it's just like, it drives me nuts because there's, there's 400 MSAs, uh, you know, and for those people out there, uh, metropolitan statistical area. And... In, within those MSAs, there's a north, there's a south, there's an east, there's a west. There's there's a there's a DeKalb Street, there's a good street, there's a bad street. There's north of you know a block, there's south of a block, and then with it, with on every block, there's a good side and a bad side. So, do you want to talk about how you went about or go about, I should say, 
you know, perfecting your understanding of a market in order to do exactly what you did, which was pick up a Kraken deal in 2012 in a market that you were very confident on. But then also you had to do a lot of research. You said, you know, a little bit, a little while ago, you said it took you a little bit of time to find the fact that this particular market didn't have any corrections in 2008. So what sort of data you're looking at and, and really just explain the nuts and bolts of, of how you do what you do. Yeah. So, I mean, it starts with the macro research, right? So to your point, you talk about the U.S. market. Well, I mean, we're in the U.S. market. So for us, it's okay. Now pick an MSA. So, you know, we live in Chicago. So Chicago is one of the MSAs we look at. Um, and part of the challenge for us was when we're investing, it's easy if it were when we're by ourselves because we knew we liked Chicago. So we just bought stuff we liked in Chicago. When you are looking to work with other investors, now you're looking at protecting their money and you're looking at more economic indicators. You're looking at things like population growth. You're looking at job growth. You're looking at different indicators to help you understand where the market is headed. The challenge that we started to face is from a macro level, Chicago is going the wrong direction with a lot of those economic indicators. So it's losing population. It's losing jobs. Illinois is one of four states that lost population. Um, um, so it's something where as we looked at everything we wanted to do to scale, there were a lot of red flags. So we real, but we realized there are a ton of people investing in Chicago, making the money, right? So it can't just be population growth, job growth, check, 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 you're good to go, right? There had to be more to it. Um, so for us, we look at a couple of things. We look at those things to help us understand the market as a whole. When those things are not favorable, like in Chicago, um, we like to go deeper into the submarkets. And you have to be even more selective. You have to be even more conservative with your underwriting, the markets you're selecting. And then you're looking for submarkets that are seeing growth. So you're looking at things like um, what jobs are coming to the area. You're looking at what developments are happening, what new construction is taking place, what is the net absorption. Net absorption is basically when you have new apartments coming, um, coming on. How many, how quickly are those apartments being filled up? So if there's a thousand new apartments going on, um, are a thousand being filled or only 800 being filled? Um, so it kind of lets you know what the demand is and the pace of the growth. So that's something that we look at to understand as we're looking at these different submarkets, what's happening. One thing to point out is that the numbers can be very tricky if you don't talk to real people. I mean, numbers are great, but they're not the end all be all. You have to talk to people to understand what's happening. And I'll give you an example. In Chicago, the neighborhood I'm in, North Center, uh, if you look at the numbers, it might indicate you'll see population loss. You'll see that people are leaving, and that's not really what's happening. What's happening is this is a very dense neighborhood, and because of that, that building I told you about, that was a two-flat. They knocked down that two-unit building and built this single-family home for $1.9 million. So you used to have two families there. Now you only have one family. So because that's happening, you're actually seeing the, the gross numbers decrease, but the value, the demand, all of that is actually improving. So that's what's happening in, in a very dense market like Chicago. So it's important to understand that you can't just take those data points and run without really getting a deeper understanding of what's really happening in that submarket. So we look for all of those different things. We're looking for the trends and the indicators of where the market's headed and making sure that we're along that path of progress and we're projecting down the road that um, we're going to have it. We're going to be in a place that we want to invest in long term. Right. That's, and that's very interesting that you've, you know, because everyone's been told population growth, employment opportunities, you know, that sort of stuff are the key drivers of a great sub-market. But I love what you said about the net absorption. And I think that's a really good indicator. And the fact that in a neighborhood like yourself, where I can only imagine, is it brownstones? Are they sort of, yep. yeah, it's really beautiful brownstones for people who don't know what a brownstone is. Google it, it's great. Yep. <laughs> in New York, it's very traditional row housing, right? 
Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., all these older cities in the States. And they have such great architectural bones that they are, you know, people want to, as you said, knock it down and build it back up again. But that net absorption rate, so you're looking at, a, is that over a period of, say, to, say it is 1,000 units, is that over a period of, of 12 months or is it a six-month period? Like, what are you looking for that, quote-unquote, net absorption? Yeah, I mean, we understand use- it better. Yeah, we usually look around 12 months just to understand what's happening. Um, we look at that. We also look at rental rates. That's another thing that we look at because they kind of go hand in hand. Um, if vacancies are going up, if you, you know, net absorption, where is that in the market? And then rental rates. So in Chicago, there was a report from the Tribune that just came out last week or late last week that overall rents were down about 15%. Um, so you know, you're now seeing a market where we were concerned that there was a lot of um, overdevelopment and basically with the rental rates coming down, that's confirmed. So we're seeing that we've made some adjustments in the way we look at our properties and the way we're projecting rental rates in the future and the way we're approaching value add in Chicago specifically based on those things. But yeah, we're absolutely looking at net absorption. We're looking at those things. We're looking at the last 12 months. We're looking at the last six months as well, just to help us understand uh, where are things projecting, right? I mean, it's all about trying to project out and on things where we have our investors, especially when there's a five-year exit plan or something like that. Um, we've got to really predict what the market's going to be like, you know, five years from now. I mean, it's 2018 now. So we're trying to figure out what does the market look like in 2023? And I've got to use all these data points to help me make that, make those decisions. So you're looking at rent growth as well. You know, you talk about that rent growth is easing. Uh, there's obviously two sides of rent growth that you can force the rent growth if you know that through value add. So, so firstly, my first question is, are you still doing that as part of your value add strategy when you're looking at, 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 at an investment? Yeah, absolutely. We're still doing it. And that's, and that's to your point. That's exactly it. But what we do is we say, okay, hey, if rent growth has come down, when you go and project, hey, we're going to see a 2% annual rent growth, we need to make sure that the data is backing that up and what's happening. And again, we may, for instance, with Chicago, now you're starting to see some of that new development slowing down a little bit because those class A luxury apartments are now having to offer concessions. Well, the reality is, is that that's not really our tenant base. You know, our tenant base is not necessarily the class. I mean, the property I live in, that's probably the highest end property in our portfolio, but um, the rest of them are not really class A luxury housing. So some of those numbers don't necessarily impact the class B resident who really doesn't have a choice but to rent because the price points are so high or they have to live further out to actually own a single family home. The way Chicago is built, it has a lot of two to four unit buildings. So it's kind of, you're living in the city, um, you know, the single family homes that land is very valuable, which is why, you know, you can knock something down and build a, you know, a million dollar property there. So we still look at it, but the value add is to play. We look at that and say, okay, what are rents going for at this quality of finishes. So if we invest three, four, five thousand dollars, we upgrade the kitchens, we upgrade the baths, here's what we can expect in rent. And here are the comps that we have that justify that and prove it. Or you take a look at it as well and say, okay, if that's the case, do we need to go a little bit above and beyond? Do we need to be a little bit more modest in, you know, our rental increases year over year? Are there other things we can do from a retention standpoint to make sure we're retaining our tenants? Because that's something that where we've thrived is just making sure we have strong retention pieces in place. So um, we're not out there necessarily always trying to find new tenants to come into our properties. And do you project a, a like an even split between expansion growth, expansion growth, <laughs> expense growth and rent growth? Is that the same or do you have a little bit of a stagger between the two? And, and what do you, what sort of, what market data are you seeing for Chicago, Illinois right now that is showing year on year rental growth? Yes. Yeah, so after you've done your value add. 
Yeah, so it, it varies by market. So in Chicago, we do um, in even to like we pretty much do about a 2% um, increase in both income and expenses. In Cincinnati, we do the same. Sometimes we'll take that down a little bit more. Um, we have a, a 28 unit Norwood that we have under contract and part of our underwriting there. There's a ton of it's weird because it's a classy area, classy property, but it's actually changing slowly. But there's a lot of uh, companies moving in, Paycors moved their headquarters there. Uh, Mercy Health Group has moved their headquarters there. And there's a Class A office building 500 yards from this property that is being developed right now. So we do think there's a lot of indicators that suggest this neighborhood is on the upswing. With that said, we're still underwriting pretty conservatively, but it's so, it's so far undervalued right now as far as the rents that there's a lot of room for growth there. So we're just trying to make sure that as we project out, we're being conservative into stuff. Even five years out, we we want to make sure that we can see stuff that's you know demanding that kind of rent today. So we're not just out there by ourselves in, in this you know wish and a hope strategy, but we know we're being conservative because we can identify other pro other properties that are commanding the kind of rents that we're projecting to be getting after our renovations, but you know four or five years after our renovations. That's and I think you you hit on something really important for those listeners who missed it. 2% rent growth, 2% ex expense growth, which is stagnant, essentially, because nothing is zero. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of thesis behind what, what that means in terms of inflation. And if you act that actually, if you do that over a long hold, that will actually have negative impact on your quote unquote growth. The fact is, is uh, inflation is higher than the 2%. And if you both stagnant, then nothing will ever grow. So you're really being quite conservative when you do that. So it's, 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 it's a little trick. Um, typically, I like to get 50 basis points between the two, but you know, it's horses for courses. So it really depends on your market. So John, tell me a little bit about, you know, you've got these, these, these hacks that people can use to try and uh, get the best market data in terms of making the right decision. And then obviously moving forward with an investment. So I know you've got a downloadable link and I'll put it in the show notes, but do you want to Bruce, through maybe some of the high level, your best, maybe five hacks that you like to use when you're, when you're researching markets to find the best data? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there are a couple of things, right? So <clears throat> one from doing the podcast, uh, it's been great to pick the brains of all these brilliant people, right? I wish I could just take credit to say, you know, I've come up with this list all by myself and it's all my genius. But the reality is, is that again, we go back to the teamwork thing. There are a lot of great people, a lot of smart people, and I've been able to pick the brains of some of the smartest, most successful investors across the country. So some of the things that we've learned and some of the hacks that we, that we want to share with people, um, I'll give the first one, right? So the first one is, um, and it's a pretty broad one, but and it's pretty something that most people know is investing along the path of progress. Um, but to take that a little bit deeper and a little bit further is how do you identify that path of progress? What are the anchors in a market? And it's not just, okay, there's a university or there's a hospital, but what's happening at that university or hospital? And I'll give you an example. The University of Cincinnati saw a 9% growth in incoming freshmen this past freshman class versus the year before that. They've hit, um, they're for five years straight now, they've hit enrollment highs, all-time records for enrollment. So when you look at it, it's not just that there's a university there. This university is growing at a rapid pace where they have, eight, you know, uh, thousands of new students this year than they had last year who are guess what are looking for housing so those are the kind of things it's not just that there's an anchor 
is that anchor growing or is that anchor in decline? Is that hospital adding a new wing? Are they putting, you know, is there a $10 million development going? Are they looking to expand north, east, southwest? So it's understanding what that where that anchor is, what's happening with that anchor. Because you see in, in the Midwest in particular, um, a lot of cities and neighborhoods were crushed when you had manufacturing jobs leave. And if you pay attention to what's happening, if you're looking at the quarterly reports, it's great that you've got this company there. But if you're not paying attention to their business, are they growing? Are they stable? Is business doing well? Uh, or are they struggling? Are they struggling to hit their quarterly projections? Are they struggling to hit the returns and profits? Those are the things you kind of need to keep an eye on as you're looking at these anchors, because that's going to tell you whether or not this anchor is going up and the neighborhood's going up, or if you need to be more cautious and the neighborhood's potentially going down. So that's kind of the, the first one. It's kind of a one or, or two together, I guess. So path of progress, right? Just looking for path of progress. And then what are the major anchors within that market? Got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another one I'll give you is um, we like to check out the the neighborhood from a TIF standpoint or what are the government doing? So is the government has any TIF funds available for it? TIF standing for? Uh, tax increment funding. Tax so increment. basically you're looking to see if the government has identified this area for development. Are they providing any incentives? Because if they're doing that, they want to see that area develop and they're providing an incentive for developers to invest in that area. So if you are a smaller investor, instead of going in there with, you know, a hundred million dollar development or something like that, you can just look and say, okay, they've identified this area as an area of, they want to see develop. Let's buy something along this path. So that's another thing that is a nice little um, hack that you can do. And you can go to your government website. Typically, if you go to um, your your planning commission. So if you go to your city's planning website, you will be able to see uh, their either um, their their planning or their zoning plans, and that should come up there. Um, while we're in that same realm, you can also look at um, if you go to the building commission, you can see where permits are being pulled. You can see what inf- you know um, you know who's building the permits, what the plans are. You can go to the economic development council. So many cities will have an economic development council. And you can see where they are, you know, looking to grow, what, what businesses are growing there, what incentives are they pushing, um, what areas have they highlighted for growth. Um, and you can, talk, you can call them directly as well. So you can call them and get a copy of the plans or sometimes they're available online. So you can download that and see the neighborhoods or the, the plans that are in development currently. Um, last one along that path is, you know, going to those meetings, right? Those city meetings, whether it be the board meeting, whether it be the zoning commission meeting, but actually just going to the neighborhoods you like, go to the meeting and find out what proposals are on the table. If you don't have time to go, go and check out the notes. The notes are typically online. So you can get the meeting notes from a lot of, uh, a lot of those councils, or you can at least get the, um, the minutes of the meetings. So you can check that out as well. That's another great tip to find out what's happening in the city. If you want to be, you know, super hacked, don't want to do all that kind of stuff, just look at, look around, you know, what retailers are there, what retailers are in the neighborhood. You can do that on a Google map. So if you're investing out of market, just go on a Google map and see what retailers are in an area. Typically, if you're seeing, um, you know, um, and I use fast food options. So I think that's an easy one for people. If you're seeing McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, it's probably your, your B minus C plus neighborhoods. If you're seeing more Chipotle's or, um, pot bellies or those type of quick service restaurants, that's probably going to be more your class B plus, maybe a class A minus. Um, and then if you're seeing none of those fast food options and only nicer in establishments, 
that's probably going to be a class A restaurant or a class A neighborhood. If you're seeing the complete opposite and you're not seeing, you know, any of those stores, maybe a McDonald's, maybe, uh, you know, um, some of these other chains that, you, you know, a lot of folks wouldn't necessarily go to, um, that may be a class D neighborhood. So that's another quick way to quickly look at and get a sense of, you know, what's the neighborhood, what kind of, what kind of stores are there, what kind of restaurants are there um, to give you a sense of the, the tenant class and the type of person that lives in that neighborhood. Awesome. And so just to recap, it's the, uh, you're looking at, you're looking for the, the net absorption, Right, I think that was a big one. Uh, looking at looking at the TIFs, so the tax incentives, um, tax incentive funding for the for the local area. You can go onto the local website, uh, the planning commission website, to look at what's being what permits are being pulled, pulled. I should say how many are being pulled. What's the velocity, and that goes back to the net absorption of what velocity of. Uh, pro- products are coming to market, new new products. Uh, looking at the, the meeting minutes in terms of building development, and then from a more of a macro level, just driving the streets and looking at what sort of uh, establishments are already there. So your, your your Starbucks and your your McDonald's, obviously your Trader Joe's. If you're you know that's definitely a nicer type of neighbourhood if that's coming to your your neighbourhood. If there's a Sprouts, that's really class A. Um, but if anything like those big retailers stores are coming to those neighbourhoods, um, I think it's it's a good indication that something's going on. And, and really following you know because we're all just you know small investors at the end of the day when you're trying to big with multi-million dollar conglomerates <laughs> that are you know multinational you know i think if you're following those guys it's you know the amazons of the world you know where the amazon's distribution centers are going i know particularly in the midwest there's a lot of those popping up there yep. uh, actually i think amazon distribution is now heading to australia so uh, uh-huh. for all those international investors listening these these tips and tricks can be applied around the globe this is not just applied to to, to america uh, this is applied to any any city you live in, get get onto the local business development websites, get into the local you know people, you know chamber of commerce, and understand what's going on because that's going to be a really good indicator for you as an investor to to go out there and be successful. Um, mate, I want to ask you do have a downloadable link, so where could I will have it in my show notes, but if people want to reach out to you, where can they go to to get that? Yeah, you can go to our website, uh, kasmancapital.com. That's an easy place to get that. And then uh, if you want to connect with me, you can go to, you can shoot me an email at john at kasmancapital.com. I'm on Twitter at jkasman and at Instagram or on Instagram at jkasman as well. Fantastic, mate. Just to end the show, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast and your upcoming summit. So yeah. first and foremost, you mentioned earlier in the show that you, you're struggling with raising capital. How has a podcast increased your key person of influence status? you know, as a person, to, to, the go-to guy in, in your in your sphere of, of influence because that is so important when it comes to raising capital. And, and what has that done for your career in terms of raising capital? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a couple of things, right? So, I mean, I think we started having more partnership conversations um, right around our podcast, right? So, I mean, there's proof in the pudding right there. I mean, this relationship started, you know, we met before. First of all, let me back up for your listeners. I want to give them the real background here. So, <laughs> Reed and I met uh, in Denver at the best ever conference and you and I had a conversation about podcasts, you know, and I, you know, I've I met you, you know, in my head, I knew you from the podcast, right? I knew you from your podcast and it was a great conversation. I thought, I'm like, man, this guy's very laid back. He's warm. He's like cool guy. Um, and we talked about the podcast and my push to you was I didn't want to just have another podcast, right? And we had a long conversation about that. I felt there were a lot of guys who were having podcasts who were, you know, just telling stories. I'm like, I don't want to be in the, like the world does not need another <laughs> podcast from me. Um, but we they talked do. about it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they do. So I spent a lot of time figuring out, well, what kind of value can you actually create and bring to the world where it's something that other people aren't doing? And that's where it went to the target market insights because 
it was something I struggled with because again, I, I did so great on my first deal from a market standpoint. And then every deal subsequently was a little bit slightly worse on the market. And the reason was my first deal, I wasn't looking for cash flow. I was looking at a neighborhood that I liked because I was living in it. So it just worked out really well. The second one, I was looking for cash flow, but you know, there are a bunch of other things going to it. So it was like, well, how do you balance getting strong cash flow and strong appreciation? And that's where I needed to really start learning from other folks how to do it. And as I was going through that process, I realized, you know, if I'm spending a lot of time figuring this out and mastering this, I imagine there are a lot of other folks who are trying to figure out the same thing or should be if they're not and they're just investing because their cousin lives there, um, but not taking the time to actually understand what's happening in this market. They should be. So that's the reason we started. As far as how it's helped my business and helped me grow, I think one, it's, it's connecting me with, with people who are very successful, who have a, a ton of knowledge and it's allowed me to absorb that knowledge, to regurgitate that knowledge to a lot of folks that I know and develop kind of my sphere of influence. It's allowed me to be seen as a thought leader leader when I talk to people and not just be seen, but to actually be a thought leader. There's not a question that I've been asked that I either A, didn't know the answer or B, know who to go get the answer from very quickly. So it absolutely forces you to be more knowledgeable and be more educated. And all this is about education. You know, there, I had a meeting last night actually with an investor who listens to the podcast and he told me, that he won, he really enjoys the podcast. He'd be interested in investing with me on my next deal. But as we were talking, I was explaining something to him. And he said, hey, just real quick, what's the cap rate? And it reminds me that there's a lot that we learn and we know and we just absorb and we move so quickly. And it's all about education. And you sometimes have to step, step back and make sure you're going through that process to properly educate anyone who's interested. Not whether they invest with you or not, this is about education. That's what we do these podcasts for us to help educate our listeners on how to invest in real estate, how other people are doing it, what they're looking for. So it's helped me do that. It helped me kind of share that knowledge and share that wealth with other people. And it's helped me do bigger deals. You know, um, the partnership that we had, we closed on the Joseph together, 192 unit deals. I'm glad you guys allowed me to come in on that deal and kind of partner with you. It's allowed me to do bigger deals and have more confidence. So you do a 192 unit deal, a 28 unit deal doesn't seem that daunting. A 50 unit deal, a 100 unit deal, you know, they don't seem as daunting once you do larger deals like that. And that's even where you go to other investors because I have investors who would love to invest with me, but want to do smaller deals, want to do a four unit deal, want to do an eight unit deal because to them, they see those numbers. When you see 200 units, you see, you know, $20 million acquisition. They're like, whoa, man, I don't know yeah. if I want to invest in a 20 million. Like, can yeah. we just start with a four unit? Like, and I give you, so it's, it's good for them, that, but there's the education. Say, so, well, actually, you know what? While it's 20 million and the numbers are a lot bigger, it's actually a little bit safer because you have more people looking at the deal. You have more people underwriting it. You have people who only do this professionally. You have property management that only manages large apartment buildings. You have, you know, banks that only invest in these large syndication type deals. So once you start to educate people, they start to understand a little bit better. And it's just, it takes time for you to get comfortable with it. So it's been great from that standpoint to educate people, learn, for me to continue to learn and uh, become better at identifying the right target markets because my markets are a little bit different. You know, for, for, for you, I know you guys are focused on Texas and starting to look in Georgia and other markets. The numbers there look great. There are a lot of apartments in that, the Southern region and, and out there in the Sun Belt. You have a lot of apartment complexes, so it's easy to do apples to apples comparisons. Um, in the Midwest, you, like in Chicago in particular, the density, there aren't very many 100-unit buildings in Chicago. There are some 12-unit buildings, some 8 units, some 20 units. There's things like that, but there aren't the big ones. So I, I've had to adjust the way I do business and the things that I've learned from my mentors to fit my market. So it's been great for me to learn how others are doing that so I can continue to fine-tune and critique my own underwriting and my own approach to the business.
And, and I think in general, like just hearing you walk through how we met and, and the different, you know, you're just, I feel like it's like climbing that ladder and, and every single time, like you just, you, said that people oh, are they daunted by the thought of doing a $20 million deal. You might've been daunted by the thought of doing a podcast. You know, I know I was, when I first started, I was like, well, who the hell is this Reed Goosen's guy who's going to freaking talk about his Australian accent, right? Like who cares? You know, but after you start doing that and you start educating, I personally find I get so much out of this. Like it, it helps me like my rest of my day from after this podcast is going to be bloody fantastic because I've had an awesome conversation with a thought leader like yourself. And, you, you know, we all have these self doubts. We all have our chatter in our head saying, you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't. At the end of the day, it's limiting beliefs. And you can only meet, you surround yourself with people who are doing it. And, you know, I'm so glad we met at the Denver, um, you know, uh, meetup event that I hopefully was able to inspire you to go off and do something when you haven't. You take an action. And now this has opened up so many more doors that you are now investing in large apartment communities. It gives you more confidence just to walk with your back straight, you know, Absolutely. and go out yeah. there and just start crushing it. So I think it's just from, there's so many good things that come from being a thought leader, becoming a key person of influence. Now, you don't have to start a podcast for those people who are listening, but you can do little things that can just help. And, and again, if you lead with education, you're going to find that one, you become more knowledgeable just inherently by continuing saying the same stuff over and over again. But two people are going to come to you because they're like, oh, wow, yeah, you know what you're talking about. So it's, I think it's just, there's, there's just such a great sphere of things that you can learn from, you can push out to other people and you can help them and, and, and you know, shine the light on them to help them get that, you know, get over that barrier to you know, whatever it might be, investing in four units, investing in eight units, investing in 20 units, investing in 100 units, you know, it's, or it keeps going up and the game keeps getting bigger. Um, mate, I do want to talk about your summit that's coming up because that's, again, another thing that you've done you've partnered with some with another lady who's been on the show Bree Schmidt she's an awesome gal uh go back and listen to I think it's 100 episode 110 but the just the, the, the that in itself that you become a thought leader and now you're starting a summit which is bloody fantastic a platform where people can come and learn on a larger scale so do you want to talk to me a little bit about that yeah, absolutely. So uh, just talking about, you know, like you said, you know, going to these conferences, meeting people, my business has exploded from every conference I've been to. I can directly link a relationship that I've met at a conference. Literally, the, the meeting I had last night, my dinner last night, is with a guy I met at the last conference or, or the, the San Francisco Bay Summit. So when I go to these conferences, I've realized how much it drives my business. It, 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 you know, it refills my energy. It gets me excited. Networking is such an important piece when it comes to real estate and it's building relationships. And the, the thing about a summit or a, a two day conference or something like that is you get to see these people over a period of time and you get to have different sessions and you really get a chance to get to know them and hang out after, you know, the, the summit and grab drinks. And those are where the relationships are really built. So we wanted to do something in Chicago because, you know, there, there's something out in Denver, there's something out in San Francisco, but everything that's in Chicago is kind of a, a pitch fest, right? So you'll, you'll get, you know, some of the, the larger gurus who come out and some, you know, I'm not here to critique any of those guys, um, but they'll come out and they'll, they'll have their systems or their programs that they're selling. And if people get great information, that that's good for them. We wanted to create something that was not about pitching, was not about um, selling a pro. I have nothing to sell. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to sell actually. Um, but I want to network with people. I want to continue to network with people. I want to build kind of my connections. I want to build, you know, my investor pool. I want to build my mentor pool. So for me, this business is all about networking. So we wanted to create something that allowed us to connect with other investors throughout the Midwest. This, we also have a lot of investors who invest in the Midwest for cash flow, but have no idea about it. And as Bree, Bree is a good friend of mine, so we started talking about this. Um, she's got the turnkey 
review site, which is intended to help people learn about turnkey providers. I've got target market insights, which is about helping people learn how to identify these neighborhoods where they should be investing. But there are a lot of people in California out there where you live out there in LA and uh, or out there in Australia or wherever in the world who will blindly invest on the south side of Chicago in these neighborhoods they've never seen, don't know anything about, don't really know the operators. And they do it to see these double digit returns they see on a piece of paper. And, you know, if they took a minute to actually come and network or get to know the people or come to the city, they would they would learn a little bit more about how to be more, a little bit more precise or to understand what's going on. So part of this is really about whether you're out there on the coast and you're investing in the Midwest or cash flow, or if you live in the Midwest and just want to connect with other investors and people who are scaling their business, we want to bring people together to be able to do that. So that's May 11th and 12th. We're really excited about it. We've got some amazing speakers who are all volunteering their time. We're not paying anybody. So they're all flying on their own dime. So I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, and they're coming out and they're speaking. They're going to share their knowledge. And it's everything from how to find deals in this very competitive market, how to analyze deals in this competitive market, how to flip homes, how to do apartment syndication, how to you know, do note investing. We've got Dave Van Horn coming. We've got Joe Fairless. We've got, um, you know, uh, Sterling White, who's pretty big on bigger pockets. So we have a really strong network of folks who are coming, volunteering their time to educate the masses. And we're really excited about bringing this thing to life. Awesome, man. Well, I'm so excited for you because I think it's going to literally skyrocket your business even further. You're taking that next step in your uh, in your business. I'm actually going to pick your brain after this show about how to start a conference because we're, we're yeah. looking to start one as well. But dude, I know I want to be conscious of your time. What what are the dates again, just so people can uh, check it out? May 11th and 12th, you can go to midwestresummit.com slash tickets or just go to midwestresummit.com and you'll see all the information about the about the conference there. Fantastic. In Chicago, I uh, I will be back in Australia, unfortunately, for a mate's wedding, but uh, I would love, I'll be definitely there next year for sure. Mate, uh, just to round up the show, I always like to ask my investors to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is a daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? So I write them. Um, I write them daily. Um, that's been something I've, again, I've taken from other people. I used to write them, but it was more, I write them weekly or, you know, a couple times a month. And I've just learned from other folks, writing them daily really helps me stay focused, understanding the why behind what we're doing, right? Because you can get exhausted. I mean, you're up. I don't know if the, the listeners know, but it's pretty early out there in California right now. So I'm like, why is he available this early, but you know, it's, it's your daily goals, right? You know what you're trying to do, you know what you're trying to build. So having those daily goals keeps you motivated and allows you to feel comfortable with the sacrifice. Yeah, no, hundred percent. The reason I'm up so early is because one, I'm a morning person, but two, I've got a lot of crap to do in the day. <laughs> <laughs> my day is at 7, 20 AM and the people aren't having, my, my phone's not blowing up just yet, but it will give it, give it time, give it time. Right, right, uh, right. Mate, who's the most influential person in your career today? Oh man. So, uh, so many people. Um, I think as far as folks that have a personal relationship with, I would go with, um, you know, my, my grandmother's very inspirational because she really is the person who just believed in me for, with no reason, just like completely, you know, filled my head with all the dreams of the world of what I could be. And, you know, you can do anything you want to do and just constantly shower me with that. It really helped me build my confidence. I think, you know, beyond that, when it comes to the real estate investing side, um, I can't say that there's one person, you know, I think just being around so many successful people and knowing them and actually 
seeing them and having real conversations. It made it practical. It wasn't a book that I was reading. It wasn't these mythical creatures or somebody's biography or just looking at TV and seeing these millionaires. It's like real people that I know who are crushing it in real estate, which made it very tangible and real for me. Right. I think that's, that's, that's awesome. And, and what's your grandmother's name? Oh, Claudia. Claudia. Love it. Yeah. Love it, mate. Uh, what's the most influential tool in your real estate business, whether it be physical or digital? Um, the most influential tool is, uh, well, I mean, email, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> there are a couple of things. So like boomerang is, um, it's an email application. It's kind of an, a plugin and it's great because like you, you know, my days get pretty hectic. I, I actually still work a little bit full time, technically speaking. Um, <laughs> you know, we, I'm very fortunate to work for entrepreneurs where they allow me to kind of craft my day as I see fit. So I'm, you know, I'm at home right now doing this with you. Um, and you know, we kind of, you know, I, I do what I have to do throughout the day. So, um, but because of that, there are a lot of late nights, early mornings where I've got to get stuff done. And sometimes you need to send an email and you don't necessarily want that broken or know you're putting in an offer at 2am. So, uh, so I set my boomerang up so it can go out a little bit later in the day. Some people do the opposite and they, they want to be seen as being, you know, emailing you at 1am in the morning. It's like, it's a weird, weird really weird <laughs> psychological bullshit. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, yeah, yeah. Screw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date and what have you learned from that failure? So um, once we realized we really wanted to scale our business and we, we talked to people about how to do that, we got two answers. One was to raise capital for deals. The other was to flip for additional income. We, did, we decided to do both. And um, in theory, in theory, it was great. Uh, on the flipping side, we knew we were swamped. We had a lot of stuff going on and I really, I had no desire to really flip. I was only doing it so I could be a better multifamily investor and have more capital for it. Um, and I, I brought on a partner who that's what he did. He was a contractor. He managed the flips. And in short, that partnership blew up. Um, he did an awful job managing it. Um, I take full responsibility because I, you know, Anytime you're in a partnership, you just have to be accountable for it. It's my money. It's my fault. So we, um, I thought we did a pretty good job vetting him. What we didn't do was we didn't, um, we didn't end the relationship or, or take the necessary actions when we saw the deal was, was headed south. We had a lot of conversations. He had a lot of great excuses. I mean, he, he could come up with some answers as far as why things were not there and they were going to be back on track in a week and we're just waiting on this. And, um, you know, after, after a while that started to wear thin and quite frankly, we just, we were knew we were going to take a loss on that first flip deal. And, um, we should have pulled the trigger sooner on just eat, biting a bullet and, and taking that loss. But we were holding out hope that he could kind of turn things around. And ultimately, that ended up costing us even more money. So I would say that was the biggest failure was that first flip and the fact that we didn't uh, end things quicker. quicker. Um, and that's the lesson is, is, you know, you always want to find the lesson in those losses or those failures. The lesson was we need to be more aggressive when things are not going right. Let's be upfront. Let's be honest. And let's move. And if we got to take a loss, let's let's minimize what that loss is and let's keep it moving. But again, you know, the neighborhood wasn't there. All, all the stuff that I, I know now and I knew then, you know, I didn't like the area. I didn't like the market. I didn't like it was all these things. We were flipping with ARVs on the top end of the market. You know, I'm like, there's no comps at $440,000 that I can see in this neighborhood. Well, I just, I'm going to do this one at 440 and that one's going to be for 445. It's just, he was the flipper. He had that background. He had sales experience. He had successes. He showed me the successes. So I, I went along with that. And, you know, I, I think 
you know the knowledge that you have and you have the confidence. You may not know as much as someone else, but that, don't allow that to discredit the knowledge you do have. And that's really the big thing is, you know, know what you do know. And if you're not comfortable based on the knowledge you have, either A, walk away or take the necessary steps to either adjust that plan or make something a little bit different. I was in the same boat, mate. I flipped a few houses in Philadelphia, put a whole new story on one of those row houses. I'm very familiar. I'm a structural <laughs> engineer. I know I drew the bloody drawing for crying out yeah, loud. Yeah. But yet my business partner and subsequently the GC, we had to fire him. Not the, my business partner, but the GC. Had to fire him, had to bring in more guys. We get, took a huge loss on it. Not a huge loss. I think it ended up being... Is a fifty thousand dollar loss, but on but on a um, on a three or four hundred thousand dollar flip, that's a lot of money. That's a, that's a large percentage, and I didn't lose my shirt over it. But I had my I had some family money involved in the deal, so there's definitely things you learn. But I think the biggest thing that for me is understanding like. To do flipping and, and particularly, this is small ground up construction because we did put a whole new story on. We put a rooftop deck on. It's a lot more inherent risk, and if you don't understand it, and and now if I did it all over again, I would want to be the, essentially the GC. I'd go get my GC license, and I'll go, you know, manage the subs because the fact is, you know, I've had a lot of experience in ground construction, but it's the most, it's a different kettle of fish. Like, and and if flipping on a large scale can be the same issue, and not not necessarily a large scale, but. For someone who has fifty or sixty thousand or hundred thousand dollars in the deal, uh, for someone who's building twenty units, that's that's small. But for for you and I and for the average investor, that's a lot of money. And to go and flip a large and then to have these excuses and delays and scheduled delays, because at the end of the day, you as the owner are always holding the bag. You know, cost the, the time costs money. So well, it's a whole other podcast we could get get into. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I just want to let you know that I've been there and done that, and it's it's. Part of the learning process. So, mate, one more time, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Um, just all those, those, all those websites where they can uh, hit you up. Yeah, you go to casmancapital.com. So that's the website. You can check out, you know, the the link to the podcast there. Uh, we have some resources, the 21 uh, free hacks to find the best submarkets is there. You can reach out to me via email, john at casmancapital.com. And then uh, I'm on social media, uh, on Twitter, and I'm on Facebook. Facebook, I don't post as much, but we do have our Target Market Insights page on Facebook. So you can like that page. And we, we do share data information that we get uh, specifically on markets where we have our investments. So Cincinnati, Chicago. Chicago, San Antonio. We do post information of things going on in those markets there. And then um, Instagram at Jay Kasman, at Jay Kasman for Twitter and for Instagram. Fantastic, man. I really, really appreciate you taking some time today. We did go a little bit over the recording, but I'd love it when we get into these sort of, you know, down these tangents and just talking, talking, talking shop. So thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll catch up. Sounds good, Reed. Thanks, man. Take care. Now, guys, thanks for uh, listening in today. Make sure you check out all the show notes up on my website at reedgoosens.com. You can download John's awesome top 21 hacks for downloading or for finding best submarkets, and you can check that out at reedgoosens.com. Remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. We're going to do this all again next week, so take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. 